Hi, all. Welcome back to The Drip. We are the podcast where academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to broader conversations about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us ga- uh, gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes. You want to cut? When we are start so- over? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just tripping over my own, my all own right. intro. <laughs> That's all right. It's all right. It's like it's, gabbing, it's, grabbing. No, I'm not, like, no, we're not grabbing tongue, in each other's homes. tongue tying <laughs> intro. So you can just start over whenever you want. All right. Hi, all. Welcome back to The Drip. We are a podcast where academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or each other's homes or when each of us are still in our own homes. Because while we may be done with COVID, COVID ain't done with us. And also, we want to send our love to everyone grieving this week, last week, every week, because of the violence wrought by white supremacy, gun supremacy, and heteropatriarchal masculinity. All the things that would lead 18-year-olds to go and slaughter people while they shop, pray, teach, live, learn, and just to live their lives. I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Todd? I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach African-American literature and expressive culture. Folklore and Cultural Studies at the University of St. Thomas. Thank you. Crystal? And I'm Crystal Moten. I'm a public historian who works at a national museum in the DMV. All right. Thanks, Crystal. We're excited to be discussing today Namrata Padar's debut novel, Borderless. Padar is a fiction and nonfiction writer who serves as the interviews editor for Quayley, which is the nonprofit organization that aims to nurture BIPOC writers. She also teaches literature and writing at UCLA. Borderless was a finalist for the Feminist Press's Louise Merriweather First Book Prize, and chapters from the novel have won the short story contest organized by the 14th International Conference on the Short Story in English, the New Asian Writing Prize, and some of the stories have appeared in the Best Asian Short Stories Anthology. So before we get started, spoiler alert, just a reminder that when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything. So as you may know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. But even as I give the spoiler alert, I have to say, like, I don't know that this is a story where there's, like, anything to, like, give away exactly, right? There's no, like, big she comes mystery. To there's no, she comes to America, right? Like, that's the big mystery. Um, yep. But I, I do, I think. Hmm? I ruined it. <laughs> you ruined it. God has given it away. But actually, that leads me to like my first sort of big question. And of course, my favorite word to say on the show is this genre. So let's talk about genre. So when I read the back of the book, so the final sentence of the description says, with its fragmented form, staccato rhythm, repetition and play with English language, borderless questions the assumptions of the quote unquote mainstream Western novel. And I have to say, when I read that, I was like a little bit worried. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to read this book and I'll have no idea what it's saying because it's going to be some like, you know, bizarre form. Um, and it's not, right? I mean, there's definitely things that, for me at least, right, who mostly reads, I guess, mainstream Western novels, like things that maybe didn't quite like, make sense to me, like I didn't quite figure it out. But to me, in some ways, it read as like a collection of short stories, but it's different from that because there are like repeated characters, especially Dia, who kind of like, I think will get to know maybe the most, right, in this novel. 
So just curious about what folks thought of Write the Chandra and what did it sort of allow us to like maybe understand about these experiences and maybe, you know, why she could have choosing this uh, particular genre to talk about these folks. Well, I think, you know, um, I think you were, you know, kind of on it and what you were saying that these, it feels like stories, but these stories are connected. And I think it's, I think it's a good genre or a good approach to uh, sort of represent the kind of disconnectedness or the separation in someone's life like so the the main character Dia who's who's the main character I think we can say because she appears the most in the in the collection or in the novel I think what really was impactful in terms of how the structure of the novel worked is like every time she came back she was in a completely different place or she was at this yeah. completely different point in her life so it really emphasized that um, not that she had this life that was filled with lots of difference, but also almost that she lived all these different lives almost. And so that was part of what was um, in some ways like uh, discombobulating about the the text is that when she came back, sometimes you didn't know it was her right off the bat, right? Like she had this almost a different voice and it was because she was in a really different place in her life. And sometimes it was places, sometimes it was times, sometimes it was the people that she was with you know, but every single time she reappears, it's like, oh my gosh, she's in a completely different spot, you know? So, and I think just generally in terms of genre, I mean, the the idea that this is a novel, I think the argument can be made because of the recurring characters, right? Um, but also because of the sort of cohesiveness, even though you have these different characters, different voices, there is a cohesiveness. Like we can find ways where most, I think everybody who speaks, Everybody who tells a story is in some way connected to somebody else in the book. Mm. And sometimes it's, you know, one or two kind of removed, but almost always within the, the course of the story, you realize, oh, this person either, oh, they work for this person or they're this person's cousin or this is such and such as dad. Or um, so it's a kind of like matrix of characters whose stories are connected to each other, sometimes not obvious in obvious ways, but always connected to each other in some ways you know so it's it's even more connected like the i was thinking of the book kane by gene tumor which is uh often thought of as like a really great experimental novel that is basically a collection of short stories and vignettes and poems there are poems in 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 kane um but there are no recurring characters in kane that i can remember there might maybe one but generally speaking it's the the characters don't recur there's it's the places so it takes place in the in the south in georgia i mm. think and then in the in the north in new york city so it's the places that are the kind of thing that 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 holds the narratives together and connects them to each other so here you have even more than that so i think yeah it makes sense to call this a novel and when i was thinking about that line anita especially you know kind of questions the assumptions part i was thinking to kind of pick up on a um a point you um dropped down todd about kind of time and chronology and how for me you know some of the characters repeated repeated themselves but it was i was trying and of course i'm a historian so i'm thinking about time all the time um but i was trying to place the story both where it started where it was going and where it ended in a particular chronology and so that was the that was the part for me that was a little bit difficult because i never knew in terms of the timing of things. And I just assumed maybe that either things, either the stories were either connected in some way, either pre-stories or post-stories. But now I'm thinking maybe there are some, some of these stories could have been happening simultaneously. 
And then I think toward I think toward the latter stories, I'm just assuming we progressed in time. But now I'm just like questioning everything. I think generally, just again, like I, I this is another one of these situations where I read this book over a really long period of time. So I was like reading bits of it here and there. So now when I go back and try to think of it together and the fact that it's these different stories, it's harder to like pull it all together in my head. But my memory is that I think generally we were progressing forward in time, right? Like generally speaking up through the entire course of the book that there weren't, I can't remember too many stories where we were flashing back to before the previous story that generally speaking, we were going forward. Is that, am I right on that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of interesting because I was like the only like time I remember is when they were talking about in that chapter or, or chapter and that story where they're talking about the terrorist attacks in the hotel right. um, in Delhi. And that was like, or Mumbai, sorry. And that was 2015. Um, so it was kind of, I think that's that. But I also think, you know, so she's broken up the book into these two sections that are like roots and routes. Um, so I think that was also to me kind of the like sort of movement in some ways, right? Sort of kind of like thinking about maybe, you know, mostly, and although she kind of mixes that up too, but kind of thinking about it like in India and then like outside of India. And so I think that was, um, so I kind of agree. I think it's like sort of generally like progressing forward, right? Because you also see kind of like Dia like being single, Dia getting married, Dia having a child, right? So I think it's also like in that, I think in her story, like there's that progression. So which I think gives like the novel kind of this like forward momentum as a whole. Um, so I agree with you, Chris. I think it is like generally progressing in time. And I mean, there is, I, I think every, yeah, whatever, everything you just said is right on in my book. And there is like a sto that story of Victorious where the character looks back on his life. And so we do have a couple of those where like maybe they look back on something, but the story itself is actually happening in that chronology that you, that you said, Crystal, I think. Right, and I think the narrator of that says that he left in the 1960s at mm -hmm. India, which is actually like kind of the first wave of like Indian American, kind of the largest, right? So I mean, there was definitely kind of that earliest wave in like the 1900s when people were coming over uh, mostly to like work on the railroads on the West Coast. And there was like that history, but then, right, it was sort of like the post, um, sort of the basic immigration act that ended national quotas, right? So like the 19, post 1965 immigrants. So he was actually coming like a little bit before then, uh, which is kind of interesting. So he must, he, I guess, came as a student maybe, I'm not sure, but that would be kind of like, 1965 would be kind of the start of, right, kind of the biggest sort of South Asian diaspora. But, right, people like Dia were definitely coming, like, later, right, because call centers weren't were in existence till like, 1990s and, like, 2000s, right? So I think that's also, like, gives us kind of a little bit of, a, like, a timeline in terms of, like, what was happening when. So I think that's the other sort of, like, timing we could, like, think about, I think. Yeah, um, so it, it asks us to, like, orient ourselves somewhat. Like, we have to do a little bit of work to orient yeah. ourselves time-wise. Yeah. And just, it gives us a few cues, but we kind of have to put it together. But it's not super hard, like you're saying, I think, yeah, to know generally where you are chronologically, yeah. Um, I wanted to go back to, like, it was just really interesting listening to you talk about sort of the genre, because you use, like, a bit of, like, a bunch of words that I feel like definitely, to me, sort of feels of, like, a diaspora, right? So we were kind of talking about this notion of, like, disconnected and discombobulation, right? Which, to me, is, like, all like all kinds of migration and movement, right, can be disconnecting and discombobulating. But at the same time, you were also talking about this, like, matrix of, like, connection and cohesiveness, which is, I think, also, right, part of, like, a diaspora and part of, like, thinking about, right, all of these, like, connections that, A, like, bring you somewhere, right, or help bring you somewhere, but also, like, when you get 
to a place like you might be lucky enough to have a community already that exists and you get kind of connected that way and like maybe some of that disconnectedness and discombobulation maybe is like mitigated um so i just think it's like really interesting to think about all of those words as actually being very much part of a diaspora right that like all of those things happen right you do feel discombobulated and disconnected but also you might actually kind of end up in a different matrix of connections right or like there's all this like connections and like things that have happened that you don't even know about maybe that like brought you to here right and that's like in big and small ways right I kind of think about like why am I like in the U.S. right as like this Indian American person and it's like it has to do with like colonialism it has to do you know like all these like big things but then there's also like the specific histories right it's like I'm also here because like my uncle my dad's brother was a doctor and he was able to come because they were recruiting specifically like professionals to come here right so he came here in the 70s and then my sponsored a bunch of his siblings but it took like eight years for like my family to get a visa to like come here right so like we didn't move here till 1988 so it's like all those like specificities of like particular people coming to particular places but all of that is like also triggered by right these like large historical things that we don't necessarily have like personal right sort of like memory of or like connection to so just thinking about all of those words were like i think just like a brilliant description of like diaspora right? um so i just wanted to like note that and just say no yes I, to all of that i think that's really great a great point and it makes makes me think about i guess i'm trying to think about like if you if you just like maybe had a map and you just sort of like put on the map people who had, you know, from the same family or from the same place who had gone to different places in the United States or whatever, and then trying to think about how are they connected? Like you could look at it in that moment and it looks disconnected. Mm -hmm. But if you consider the history and the stories, now everything gets connected, right? And I think that's what the novel is doing in some ways for us. I mean, eventually we'll see that people are in different places with they gravitate even towards each other in the United States because of family or because of um, marriage or whatever it might be. And, you know, the main character, Dia, at the beginning is sort of, um, in some ways, she's sort of like the least connected to family except for her mother. I think her father is dead and she wants to get away. She has this, you know, really powerful or strong urge to, to get away, to leave, to escape, to do something different. But, you know, over the course of the novel, you see how the ways that she's drawn back to her family, um, even when she's on another continent, you know, so I think that's really important. And I love the part that you said, too, about the stories, even that we don't know, that connect us to each other, or connect our families to each other. And that's true. Like, yeah, that's so true. And I just thought when you were talking about how in diaspora you might move to someplace and then you have to find your cousins or find someone that you know to help you get started. It's reminded me of like August Wilson and all of his plays, how that's the, that's the case, you know, um, some, you know, like a play like Joe Turner's come and gone or any of those, like, which is about another kind of di diaspora. Like that, that's what those, all of the, that century cycle is about is black people moving from the South to the North and even back and forth and back and forth and how they establish themselves when they come to the big city, they have to find people that they know, et cetera, which would be the same thing that anyone immigrating to this country would have to do. And we definitely see that in this novel. Yeah, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but um, I think 
all migrations, right, have like similarities in some ways, right, even if it's like within a particular country or outside, but um, Trustee Methel and Cottom, um, and this like book group that, you know, sort of she came into because we were reading her book, she said, this is like really beautiful thing about how like our parents moved to like give us, our parents moved to like give us better opportunities or what, you know, whatever they were thinking, but that also inevitably led to us not being able to know them or their lives, right, and because we're not in the same place as them. And like she was talking about, you know, that like applies to like, right, Black migrants who were moving up from the South as much as it applies to like my parents, like moving from India to the US. And I thought that was just this beautiful like thing to think about, right? There's just like all these like disconnections partly happens because of love, right? Partly happens because like our parents and our families and our communities want to like invest in a different future for us. But it also then means that I don't know, right, what it was like for my parents. And my parents don't know what it was like for me as like a 10 year old to like live in this place where it wasn't my family and it wasn't right, kind of like who I knew. And so I just think that that's just, so I do think that there's like so many similarities, right, to kind of think about just movement and migration, regardless of the distance, maybe. I, I think that's so right. And I think, um, I was thinking when you were saying that about, you know, the kind of ambivalence that someone must feel when they leave a place to go somewhere else, like in some cases, you want to escape it because you think it's not a good place. But then when you get away, you realize the things about it that you that you you didn't think about when you were there and that you miss, right? And so there's that that kind of like, you know, sort of different ways that we think about places when we're not there and when we miss them. And then that point that you made about the distance not being the most important thing. Like I think about my family, my mom and dad leaving their hometown of, you know, rural small town of Missouri and not going very far, just like, I don't know, 300 miles or something like that but into a whole different world. And um, the fact that I we always visited that town. I mean, I even lived there for three years or whatever, but it, I never knew it the way that they knew it. And I never cared about it the way that they cared about it until I was older. Like I'd always be like, why are we going back to this old little tiny, you know, whatever. And uh, it wasn't until like I realized like how much it meant to them but also like that my family was there. not And even when my family was like, not so many of them were there anymore, that it was this rooted place. Like it was this place that we all would go back to, that we all felt like we came from in some way, shape or form, you know? And that's something like you said, like you see that in this in this novel, how the, the younger generation maybe even haven't been to the place where their parents came from and don't know the smells and the sounds and the language and all of that stuff, right? And so they feel disconnected from it or only experience it through the parents. And of course, anything that you get through your parents, you're like, what are these old people talking about? <laughs> Until you're older, you're like, oh my God, this is important, right? You know, so I think, yeah, I think there's a lot more people that have experienced this kind of thing and maybe don't even think of it that way as a migration because it was such a short distance or something. Mm -hmm. and yeah. And so I think of the migrations that happen that take us, you know, to and from homelands, but also as you all are kind of talking, I'm thinking also about kind of the migrations that people have or the movements people have when you kind of move up and down class hierarchies mm -hmm. or, you know, other social hierarchies where, um, again, like you may not be moving physically, but you are in a new terrain or a new culture surrounded by new people with new expectations and how that can cause some kind of confusion and discombobulation. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was thinking about one of the characters in the story and I'm, I'm kind of 
not remembering the, the character's name, but he arrived to the U.S. and I think he arrived to Jersey and then he went to go work at the newspaper stand in New York and then eventually ended up in um, California where then he was able to bring his family. And so I was just thinking about those kind of specific networks that we were just talking about, but how, again, that's couched within a larger structure and context that tons of people actually are experiencing. But, you know, we don't know that because, you know, we may not have that knowledge, but it's, you know, it's not just an individual experience. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, that was in the, we don't know the name because it's in the first person. And we were talking about that story, actually, that's it's one of the few that's in first person, that's Victorious and 125. So this is like one of the few ones where I guess he's kind of like reminiscing about his life, but he also gives us kind of the story of like leaving and coming. And yeah, you're exactly right, right? So he sort of has all these, because uh, he actually comes with the master's degree, right? But I think like a lot of the times that was also depending on like what you had it in, like people weren't always able to like translate their educational credentials into sort of jobs here that would actually be com- commensurate with their education. Um, and I know, so I think that's actually like the trajectory that he takes isn't that unusual, right? As you were saying, Crystal, like a lot of people had to do that, right? Like you think about, and I think this is true of migrants from a lot of different parts of the uh, world, actually, right? Like you have doctors and lawyers and people who are like driving taxis, who are, you know, because there's like a lot of obstacles sometimes to like to be able to like get that. And I know like my mom, for example, had like a teaching degree, but her, you know, like I think it was like her English wasn't kind of like in the right accent or the right, you know, so like she couldn't quite like get that. And she, you know, she kind of went into social work and it was like a good fit for her. But there's like a lot of different ways in which I think that story kind of made sense to me, actually, because I think that is the story of a lot of um, people, depending on like when they came and like what their degrees were in and like whether they were able to find the right like fit. Um, But also just that, right? I mean, I think he said that he got like loans from people and like people kind of set him up. Oh, and he does actually drive a taxi for some time Mm -hmm. because I think he was like working in like one place and then he's like I took up uh, this is on 129 the job was only five weeks so five days a week so I took up another tax job driving a taxi on weekends from a Nigerian Desi who was looking for help so he could take classes at adult school right so I think it was also um, just kind of like networks upon networks of like different people that you like can can get connected to as as you like try to figure out how to like rebuild your class status right so I think it's like an interesting um, I love that so trying to think about like migration not just like place but also across like status and class and mm-hmm. like different kinds of locations yeah I you know th- that story and, and also what you were just saying about it just makes me think too about the sacrifices that um, people make when they do this you usually for their children I mean they're usually they're thinking about the next generation but yeah I mean if you have a degree you know and or you have training or whatever and you go across the ocean and have to basically start over and how long you know it took him to sort of get to the point where you said eight years before he could bring his family over right so that i mean that's partially a function of the system the immigration system but it's also a function of trying to sort of like build himself to a stable financial situation where they could come over and he could take care of them and so to to not see your your children your family for eight years i mean that's a tremendous tremendous sacrifice and then to you know be living basically in you know like multiple you know like you know basically sharing rooms with people that you don't know and that sort of thing it reminds me of the haitian author um haitian american author um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, her book, this is my brain is is totally broken right now, but she has a book, The Dew Breaker. It's called The Dew Breaker. And I love it, love it, love it. It's one of my favorite books. But it's it's about, you know, the Haitian diaspora of, you know, Haitian immigrants to the United States. And in that book, there is a character who comes to from Haiti to New York City and lives in a house with two other men and none of them you know, like their wives are still in Haiti and they have to like have this whole like separate life while they're in New York City basically to just get by so it's like their friendship but also they have some affairs you know basically because they just like need to feel close to someone while they're away from their family I mean you can sort of argue about that or whatever but I mean that's kind of like what the reality is I guess and so but they never are not in, in deeply in love with their family and their wives and everything and when they bring them over the, then trying to put it back together is like this huge undertaking to try to like and it, it doesn't go back together the way that it was before right so you sacrifice your life your aspirations your family, relationships, all this stuff to provide something for the next generation. Man, it's that's a huge sacrifice. Yeah, but I think on the other side, it's also like a huge burden, right? Because like you're always reminded of that sacrifice. Um, oh, you mean for, like, this, for the generation? For the child, that's just yourself? right? Because I kind of feel, yeah, it's just myself, uh, <laughs> right? Because I feel like that is always the story. And I'm not like denying that that's not the story and like, or that's not the like sacrifice. But I think it's also like a lot for like children to feel like they have to somehow live up to that sacrifice and like live up to that like story of like how much they did sacrifice, which also like actually now made me rethink, right? That moment when Dia like yells at her mom, <laughs> which I was kind of thinking about. So this is on 54 and her mom's like going on about sort of like you know marriage and all of this and like dia yells will you shut up bitch dia stood up shut up please you're fucking suffocating me and i was so shocked i was like i would never ever. i almost fell out of the chair when she said that i was reading i was like oh my god did she say that in her head tell me she said that in her head she didn't say that out loud what but also not that i've like thought these exact words but it's just like i get the sentiment right like i think just like and there's like also i know you know i think we're going to get to this but like thinking about like gender expectations right this idea that she should get married and like all these like traditions that you're both like connected to but you're also not connected to because you did grow up like i mean she didn't grow up in the u.s but like i guess more now i'm talking about me but just like you have these different ideas about like what your life should look like Right. And like I was saying earlier, right, it's kind of this like disconnect where it's like you don't quite get like your parents like stories about how you should be. And like your parents don't get like your ideas about how your life should be. Right. Because you've like also grown up with different expectations and different ideas about like marriage and gender and right. And all of these things. And I think the only thing I was like thinking about also like in the later chapters when she's like in that marriage and just how sometimes trapped she feels. Right. With all of those expectations of like she should be helping out in the kitchen. She should be doing these things and like right. And like her husband meal just to like he does one thing and he's like oh wow like look he's coming and helping out and all of these things <laughs> like that's so real <laughs> like that those are things that I definitely you know things that resonated with me in terms of like dynamics of the diaspora but yeah I just think like yes sacrifice but also the flip side is like you have a lot of burden as like the children of those sacrifice to like live up to that so it's like the expectation of obligation right like yes I, we did the sacrifice therefore you should do this to pay back the sacrifice Oh, that's 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 fascinating because I definitely wasn't I wasn't seeing it in 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 that light in the sense that I mean I was able to see Diaz that's how you pronounce her name Diaz Diaz yeah. frustration at her mother especially because her mother in this 
story was going on and on about like gender expectations and, you know, you should get married and bring honor on the family and all of that. And so um, I could definitely see her frustration in terms of wanting to like, okay, mom, that's enough. But that, that frustration in terms of, okay, now because my parents and not only just my parents, like the generations, <laughs> including my parents uh, and uh, above me have done so much to get me where I am. And now I have to do like, there's this, this um have to do you know you know like it makes me like crystal as a like we're all academics and you know before i think you were talking about the the issue with moving making movements like in class right or in in situation i guess and i always think about having become an academic and people in my family not, not really understanding what that is right but at the same time they were always really proud because they knew it was something good you know what I'm saying? Like they saw it as something with status, I guess. Once they realized what it was at first, they were like, why is this, why is he an undergrad for 10 years or whatever? And I'm like, I'm not an undergrad anymore. I'm a graduate student. I'm a PhD student. And then, but then once you finish that, then, so I guess my point is to say, is your experience, uh, Crystal, that, you know, your, your parents and your people did this, all these things they did to sort of prepare the way for you. And now what you've done, they're proud of you, right? Like they, did they try, they didn't try to stand in the way of you, you know, going after your, your degrees and whatnot. Whereas in this book, we have characters who want to study art history and things like that. And they're being told that they can't, can't do that. Right. Like that's, that's worthless. That doesn't have any value. So the expectation is like, there's this really narrow kind of number of things that they can do, which will, you know, pay back the obligation or, make the family proud of them where they have achieved. And like, that's a big part of Dia's problem mm-hmm. is that she wants to give up to leave the business world and to go study art history. And then there's that other character, Ricky, who's in Victorious, um, who's the daughter, mm-hmm. who's right. who's like, um, I guess she, she's queer and she's like, she cuts her hair and she's got a tattoo and it's mainly the brother right who's who's getting on her who is the husband of one of dia's friends but then it's so it's i guess it's kind of beautiful because in the end that maybe this is why i like that story so much because in the end the father actually says to you know says to her basically like i i wanted to like essentially says i translated this book of poems by kabir and i love poetry and art and like then he lays down like he remembers laying in the bed with her when she was a child and everything and so he finally sort of understands Mm-hmm. that he should let her do what she wants to do. Yeah. Like, that's part of why he did what he did too. Not right. that she should just be a doctor or a business analyst or whatever it is, but that she should be able to do what she wants to do. Yeah. And I think part of part of the, the frustration is that the parents or the family members who are making the sacrifice, in some senses, they have, they do have a narrow, some, some have a narrow expectation of what success means. But I think they all want you to be successful in the sense of we came to this country or we endured these experiences because we want you to achieve a measure of success that will allow you to, in many ways, be to make it in terms of um, whatever standard in this new society that you're in. Right. And so as I was thinking about how you were asking me, you know, did my family like did they were they in terms of their responses to my educational journey was partially because, you know, it's been successful, even though they didn't understand it, it's been successful and it's resulted in me being an independent, autonomous person. Um, And so when I think of 
the constraints that families may have around some of our characters' decisions is because we want you to be. We we came to this you know to this new culture, um, eked out whatever measure of abundance we've had, and we want you to have more than what we've had. Now it doesn't seem like this career as an art historian, partly because we don't we're not quite sure about it. Is that going to allow you to not be impoverished? Well, we don't know. But we do know that a computer scientist will mean that you would you will not be impoverished. So let me steer you that way because I have a little bit more security about that. And so while I think the the professions or the jobs may be different, it all stems from this this place inside that you know these elders don't want their their descendants to struggle as they did and and so uh, what i think what i see is kind of you know this fear it's like oh if we let them we don't want them to be the struggling artists because then they won't eat and we want them to eat you know so <laughs> yeah and i absolutely understand that right and i also think about just like even in my own college where i teach like it's a predominantly white institution but it's like still classes are you know, like the ones that are over-enrolled or like the STEM classes and computer science and yeah. not like English or, you know, history or things like that. So it's, it is like, and I think a lot of, for my, a lot of my students, it's like either they're like maintaining their class status or they're like trying to reach a different class status, right? So like it, you're not going to go to a place that costs like almost $100,000 a year to like become a, you know, <laughs> a struggling artist. And I like understand that, but then I'm just like, it just impoverishes like all of our communities because like we don't have a range of things that people are doing. But also I think people like Ricky and that's so I'm glad you brought that story up because I was like, partly to me, it read like a fantasy of a second generation person in terms of like where the dad gets to, right? <laughs> so I'm like, you know, like I want that in my family and for like a lot of my friends, like parents, but I'm like, that was like really beautiful, but I'm also just like, yeah, like this is being written by, you know, sort of this like, I think, right, like second gen person. Um, so I did both love it. And I was also like, this was like a fantasy of like what you would want. And I think she sort of plays with that because I think she ends that, you know, so he's kind of like, he, I guess the dad, right, kind of like ends with this whole thing about sort of like imagining sharing that classic father daughter moment you see in English movies. <laughs> I sat by her side, ran my finger through um, her short, short hair and began Once Upon a Time, uh, which is on page 140. So I do love that there's like this element of like, sort of fantasy built into that story, even in like how she's writing the story. Um, so I was like, yes. And it was just like, I want that. And I've never gotten that, right? <laughs> like, I think it's just like these ways in which, right? Like my life is like very different than like most of my family's lives, right? Cause even the like cousins who've like grown up here, like were born here and grown up here are like, are married, have kids, right? Like they do live sort of this like relatively like heteronormative sort of lives, right? Where they're like doctors and lawyers and engineers. Um, so I think not that like being an academic is bad, but it's also like, for, at least for like my family, like it still was like outside of that realm of like certainty, right? That you were talking about Crystal, right? That they don't know what that path looks like. They don't really know, you know, colleges or tenure or like what all of that sort of is about. So I do think that in some ways, I think now they're like, okay, right? She's a scapula, she has a job. She can like live on her own and isn't in poverty and can feed herself. Um, so, but I think initially they were kind of like, we don't really know what this is. You know, you might as well be going to become a struggling artist or, you know, something like that. Cause I think in this, um, so I do think that, like, I do love that story, the ending of that story. Um, but also just like, oh, tears. <laughs> because it's like what every kid wants from their parents, right? Is to like, for them to accept them who, like who they've become or who they are becoming. Yeah. Do you, do you so. think? Do you think at all, Anita, that like, because I guess I was thinking that this 
first of all, what you said, I didn't consider. So thank you for bringing that up, that it's sort of a fantasy, because I was like, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and maybe it's uh, more than can be expected. But I think one thing I liked about that story is that, to me, that the father in the end, sort of the, the daughter was teaching him or reminding him of what he had to let go of himself that he really loved in mm -hmm. order to like do the things that he did. So you sacrifice some parts of yourself in order to create this opportunity for your children. And then because you did that, then you, then you try to sort of force them to suppress or to ignore that part of themselves that you had to sacrifice Mm. Right. It, so that you won't have to worry about them or so that it won't be the risk of them, you know, being uh, not able to feed themselves or something like that. And that like that was the thing that really appealed to me about the story was that she had shown him this is what you had to give up of your own self in order to put me in the position. And why would you not let me pursue that? Because you just because you weren't able to, you know, it should be the other way and that he realizes that. So that's like the part that I like. That's it. So just like thinking about that. <laughs> I, had a, I have a, a question that I don't, I, it's not quite formulated, but I want to just throw it out there. Something we able to talk about. And it kind of is bouncing off of your idea or your, your point, Anita, that this story was kind of like a fantastical, like a fantasy in a sense. It's a dream, right? And so I guess I was just, a, because I'm so kind of unfamiliar with uh, both Indian um, migrations and immigration stories and culture, I was really reading this as a, as, like, as a piece of realism. Like I wasn't really questioning any of the stories because I was just so enthralled by, you know, the journey that uh, Podar is taking us on. But I guess my question is, I mean, Again, I don't know how to formulate this, but in terms of the realism elements of this novel, how 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 can we think? How should we? How can we? What are you all thinking? I don't know. I feel I feel a little lost in the sauce in terms of that aspect. In the curry sauce. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> See, I wasn't gonna say that. I love me a good curry. That. I think that's okay. Um, yeah. No, I think one of the things I was saying. Uh, I think before we started recording is that interestingly, right, like this is a book about like South Asian diaspora and I am a part of the South Asian diaspora, but there was still ways in which a lot of these stories felt like really different than not only my own experience, but also like the experience of like most of the like Indian Americans I know, which I think made me think about. So I don't think that it's like real or not real, but just that I think she does such a great job of like excavating just the complexity of like how diverse this migration actually has been and that, right. And like, it has been diverse partly because like people went to like other places first and then maybe came to the US. And sometimes that included histories like indentured servanthood, right? Like in terms of like the British colonies and things like that, right? So it's just like a very complex way in which like people come together sometimes in the US and like we actually, we as in like the South Asians like don't always even understand each other, right? Cause like there's such differences in like caste and class and religion and region and uh, language, right? I mean, it's sort of like, I think, I think that's like an interesting thing. So it's like in some ways, some of this didn't resonate with me, but it wasn't because I thought it wasn't real. It was just like a different experience, which actually now also now made me rethink a little bit of like that, what I said about the fantasy, because I'm like, I'm sure that there are Indian parents who get their kids and like, right, like have sort of this ways in which they like, <laughs> Todd's like shaking his head no, right? But it's like my story of like my own, right, sort of like uh, family, but also like, to be fair, right, like a lot of my friends, because I went to like a LeBron's college, which in itself, but right, it was like a weird thing for a lot of like 
sort of diasporic parents were like, what, you're not going to like, you know, one of the like big state universities or going to like University of Chicago, whatever, doing engineering, right? So I do feel like maybe like part of my, like who I know in the diaspora is like shapes, like how I think about that story is a bit of a fantasy because I feel like I have a lot of parents, of friends, right? Whose parents also don't like quite get what they're doing if they didn't go to the like doctor or sort of lawyer sort of route. And I joke about this, but I'm like, somehow I've come out of both like high school, undergrad and grad school, knowing no Indians who became doctors, right? Like we've all like chosen different sort of pathways. Like I have a lot of cousins who are doctors, so don't worry, I'm covered if I need, you know, random medical advice. But um, so I do feel like my own like sort of diasporic history and sort of who I've like migrated towards, right? In terms of people that I've gotten to know, like it is a different story than like, even like Diaz, like who she ends up with in terms of like who she marries and like, right? Cause like that whole group of like men who all, grew up in California, end up actually marrying sort of these women who are Indian, but also have like really different yes. sort of histories of migration, right. which is like my like family and sort of circle of friends like that generally isn't true. Like either you're moving here as an adult and you've like married somebody in India, or you move here and you're like marrying somebody who's like sort of second gen, but has had like similar diasporic um, histories. Like, which makes sense, because, like, those are the people you tend to know, right? right. Um, so I feel like it's sort of, like, this interesting question of, like, she's such... I like that she sort of is, like, working against that question, right? Yes. <laughs> working at that question yes. of, like, what's the real, what's authentic, right. what's, like, right. you know, what do we believe about this? And I think she's really, like, playing with that a lot, which I, like, yeah. appreciated even as, like, mm -hmm. so, you know, you know, because I was, like, wait why don't I see myself in here more? And I was like, that's kind of her point, maybe? Yeah, and and I, I definitely agree in terms of her presenting the complexities and the, the um, what's the word? The, the multiness, the multi- <laughs> The multitude. Multitude, right, of various um, uh, Southeast Asian diasporic experiences. Because I guess what, what I left um, from reading is, is that my understanding was impoverished in the sense that, you know, I just had, not very many ideas around, you know, Southeast Southeast Asian experience. Um, and so reading this, I was like, huh, wow, there's so much more. Like even in reading this, I felt like each character that we learned about, that we got a little bit of a dialogue with, like there were maybe a hundred more who, <laughs> who kind of provided more shades and gradations of that particular context that she was um, in. And I was especially thinking about, um, was it Dia's mom? And, and I'm kind of getting people confused, but Dia's mom who sold the Tupperware and was on the train ride with the other seat. Now I'm getting I'm not confused. Sure if that was her mom or not. Um, I never. That's the. I don't one think story. I made that connection. But okay. Yeah. yeah. That's the one story where I wasn't sure who that person was. Okay. Who was like who was connected to who? Yeah. Yes. 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 Okay. That's the one story where I wasn't 100% sure. So I was just thinking about all of the women who were well, all of the people, but a majority in that story was uh, the woman encountering other women who were also on the train together. And just thinking about the variety of experiences that we encounter, and then the when the woman she she gets some money, she go like gets these. It's, this might be a different story, but one woman gets money. So she had all of these things she wants to do, but then she ends up going like on a day of pampering of herself. I think that's her cousin. I think that's, that's her cousin. cousin. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. With the um, silk scarf. Silk yes, scarf yes. And so, so she has she has this. She buys this really expensive scarf, and she goes to get like a pedicure, a manic, some type of um, yeah beauty treatment. 
and she's conversing with this obviously very wealthy woman sitting next to her. And the woman, I guess, thinks that they're of the same kind of socioeconomic background until she looks at her shoes. And then she's like, oh. Mm. And then the woman starts treating her differently. But I'm mm. just I'm just thinking about all of the different, again, the variations in experience that we encounter and just realize that, I mean, this is just literally the tip of the iceberg. And so when I think about my understanding, what I thought I knew is even smaller than that. Yeah. And interestingly, I feel like that was my experience too. And the more that not like impoverished, but just like how particular my experience mm. is the diaspora compared to like the multitude. Mm-hmm. Let me throw something in here that's probably harebrained, but um, is kind of a, res a response to both of your um, comments because I was thinking about two things. Diaz, uh, I think it's Diaz, who's kind of her interest has to do with like the Silk Road and that area of India where her family like originally comes from, where her ancestral home is, which I can't remember what the name of it is right now. But that place being like this kind of crossroads where a lot of different people from different traditions and the Silk Road itself and all that. And then that last story, which is, a, uh, I think the speaker is supposed to be Shahrazad, like a, a combination of Shahrazad and maybe Shakti, like together, because I think it's signed Shakti, right? Which is a deity, mm -hmm. I, I can't, but a female deity, right? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, but Shahrazad is the character from um, Arabian Nights who tells the stories, um, A Thousand and One Stories. And if you remember Arabian Nights, like basically she, her husband is going to kill her, who's the king, but she tells a story each night and they're so interesting and, and great that, um, and then she starts a new one, so he won't kill her mm -hmm. uh, as long as she keeps telling the stories. And the stories are about, the, the actual book is a, a sort of anthology of folk tales and folk stories from a lot of different traditions. Um, so there's this tremendous variety in this, and I've never read the whole thing. I mean, it's like so long, uh, but there's a tremendous variety in the, in the kinds of stories that get told, which I think kind of like as a framework for thinking about this um, novel then gives us that, like maybe it's not necessarily these are realist, realist stories of realism. There is an element of like sort of fantasy and we have to think about, you know, how we um, understand them. And then that variety that you're talking about, Crystal, this variety of experiences, varieties of backgrounds, which is kind of like echoed in her interest in the Silk Road. And then in this, this that these stories themselves are like the um, 1001 stories mm -hmm. that Shahrazad tells, right? And that the storytelling itself is a kind of resistance to being, having, uh, to being oppressed or having some sort of way of being imposed upon you. You know, as a, and particularly as a woman in this case, right? Like the, it's particularly the gender question I think that she's speaking to in that final section. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that was no. Um, two things. I was like, one, it made me like rethink like Dia yelling at her mom and cursing at her mom. Like in some ways, it's like you know how you're like maybe it was just in her head, but also like if you're thinking about it as like a fantastical story, right? It's kind of this like interesting way to like think about that. Uh, but also like in that final story, like you know, so she on uh, page one fifty four or actually even how she begins, right? Like she says, you like to believe you spared my life by letting me regale you over some thousand nights and one night. I won't tell them you were trying to save your royal name, right? And then on the next page, she says, you like to believe that we don't have control over our tongues, but it was you who went with your over-righteousness bro to live in the forest for years, unquestioning, unrepentant of your dad's lack of control over his tongue, um, which actually is like referring to another like Hindu mythology, right? There's sort of like the story of, 
uh, sort of Ramayana where like basically, yeah, so this like king like exiles like two of his uh, two of his sons because of like his stepwife and there's like a whole thing. So it is like interesting because there's like a lot like woven in here. And I was kind of like, oh, so she's like thinking about just this like womanhood and like women, right? Like and how they've like resisted in all these different kinds of ways, including, right? Sort of like telling stories and including kind of like having your own narrative, right? And sort of this like flipping of narratives when it was kind of like thinking about who was actually saving whom or like, what were they saving? Um, so I do think that's, you know, cause initially I was kind of like, what is happening in this chapter? Cause she's like jumping from like, you know, Arabian Nights to like the Ramayana, which you might not know if you don't know the cultural references, but then she's like thinking of, you know, um, she's like the best exotic Rajasthani hotel, which is like referring to this like, you know, movie that came out that was like the best exotic marigold hotel. And then she's like coming to obviously the president because she's like talking about the heart surgeon who's Neil, right? So kind of thinking about Dia. So it's like, yeah, like initially when I read this, I was like, uh, what is this? Like, what's happening? Like, why is this book ending this way? But I guess I sort of kind of maybe like get that now, right? That this like, yeah. I think it's yeah. like it's like the key to the novel. It's like helping right. us understand how we should how we should read the novel. Mm. And I mean, it would have been easier if it's at the beginning. But I think it's more give us a clue <laughs> because it's at the end. Well, I don't know if it would have been easier at the beginning. Mm. I mean, I only say that because I only have enlightenment because of this conversation. <laughs> So. <laughs> yeah which you know and i was and maybe we could end with this but i was like saying and i'm hopefully i'm going to phrase this correct but right in some ways like our understanding of some of these characters are like shallow but i think that's actually part of her point right that it's actually like really difficult to like understand other people's motivations other people's desires other people's like ways of being in the world right then i think sometimes when we read like more mainstream novels I think we come out of this idea of like, oh, I like, I totally get this character. Like, I understand everything about them. I like get this like coherent, cohesive idea of like who they are, of their culture, of their right kind of community. And I think she's like really working against that, which um, is frustrating at times because I was kind of like, I want to know more about why Dia like married Neil. Like, what was the thing? But I was like, yeah, like that's kind of the point, right? Like, we're sort of on the outside looking in. And I think the fact that she chose like Dia, right, who is kind of this like middle class, right, sort of, I think like relatively class privileged person as like the main story maybe makes sense because like that's maybe like whose story she has more access to in some ways given who she is. But there's sort of all these like short stories, like there's like that chapter, I think Excursion, which is about like the maid who's like in that household, right? And like, it's just like one and you get these like glimpses. And initially I was like, wait, is that a problem that like we're mostly focusing on this like middle class, relatively privileged person as like the central character. But then I was like, maybe that's kind of her point, right? It's like that sort of whose stories we tend to have access to and like whose stories, if for somebody like picking up this book in a bookstore and like reading it, like we're probably more likely to be like Dia than like the maid, right? In that house and just like the complexity of like that. And like, I don't know, she's just like playing with us in ways that maybe I don't totally fully understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like I like the opening to think about kind of shallow, like, you know, the shallow and depth. And I think I like to go back to my kind of analogy of thinking about, um, you know, the iceberg in terms of like, you only see that top part, but the, underneath is just so much underneath is more underneath than there is showing at top. But then I also like to think about this word access, right? And how hmm. we, how, how many times we don't understand that perhaps our access to something or someone is, you know, them deciding how much they want to share or show of themselves or of us, but we think we have 
the full story when many times like there's just like there, there, there maybe is a choice not to give someone or something access because I think about you know, this story and my expectation as a reader is that I expect to understand. I expect to be able to, you know, know all of this background and this backstory about these characters because that's going to help me understand better, right? But what what lesson is that also teaching us about how we approach other people? Like, do we expect to have access to people because, you know, we just have some desire to understand? Or what if people don't want to grant us access? Mm. You know, what what if that's that's their prerogative and, and they don't want they don't want to do that? And so, you know, I was just thinking about all of those things in terms of especially understanding um, people who come from other cultures and how we just expect that. Oh, you come over, you come to the U.S. and there's just this we just expect to have knowledge of whoever, who you are, your culture, et cetera. But there's nothing that says anyone has to share anything. You know, so why why do we expect so much? Why do we expect so much of people's experiences? And I would say, you know, I am a curious, you know, I want to know, I want to learn, I'm open. And so I, I don't, I had never saw the kind of harm in my expectation in terms of wanting to learn. But I think this, it's, I, I'm, I'm grappling with, my just expectation that I'm supposed to know everything about either these people or these characters when that's not my right, you know? Mm. Or that even if the share that we'll understand, right? Because I think there's yeah. like just these like vast differences that I'm going to get the quote wrong, but I was actually thinking about like the quote that ends with the sentence, right? Where she says like books like are like give you everything except like the things that are actually important and i'm i know i'm getting that wrong but i just was like thinking about that idea right that like even these like books that we read because they do help us understand and i don't want to say like people should only read books about like something that's only about them but even that right like what is like me right like what are books like me right like the fact that like i read zami as an 18 year old and like a lot of that resonated with me because she grew up in new york city and so did i like i wasn't a black lesbian growing up in new york city but like i was a brown immigrant child growing up in new york city right that like both like yes right it's like we can't like we don't have the right to like ask for access but even if we have access that we have some easy understanding but also like this notion of like who we are similar to is like so much more beautiful and complex than like these labels that we have right or like where we're from or you know sort of the origins of like our people necessarily. Okay, um, we're gonna wrap it up there. And thank you all for listening. Um, all right, we're gonna quickly go around. Hopefully everybody's thought about something that they're reading, eating, watching, listening to, whatever that's bringing you maybe a little bit of joy in our sort of, you know, screwed up world. Anybody wanna start us off? Yeah, I can. Start. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Only, Crystal. Okay, no problem. So I'm reading now a book that's been on my nightstand for months and months and months, but I have just been afraid to crack it open, not only because it's about 800 pages, but also because um, I kind of, the story is an epic story that begins early um, before this country was colonized and goes almost, I think, up to the present. You, pro you probably know it's the Love Songs of W.B. Du Bois by um, Honoré uh, Jeffers. And so I ordered this book so long ago. But um, the funny thing is, I, I, I it's, it's, it's near my bedside because I like to read before I go to sleep. And the, it's just so big, it's heavy. And so at the end of the night, I'm tired. <laughs> and I don't want to <laughs> So, as an accident yeah. <laughs> and i finally was like okay crystal like that's no longer like go read it at the table where you don't have to like 
worry about it falling on your face as you fall asleep and bruising you. Yeah. yeah. So I started reading it this week, actually. And, um, you know, it's such a it's such a, a deep and detailed book that even 150 pages in, I was like, oh, this introduction. Ooh. <laughs> but it but that it was we were way past introduction. I just felt like I was being introduced to so many people and places and concepts and ideas um, that I was like, wow, I, I'm just barely in, into the book and now I'm kind of like halfway through so it's it's really enthralling so that's what I'm reading I got that book it's Me not too. On my, it's not on my nightstand but Me it's in my house. and somebody commented like that book is big I was like yeah yeah okay. well um, thanks for give, telling us that I feel like I'm gonna yes. get some motivation to start reading it too uh yes. Yes. is that was that your only recommendation I'm sorry was that your only uh recommendation or was there Oh, I have a no. I, I, I'm just gonna talk about that one. So that was okay. Cool. Talk about. Yeah. Sorry, Todd. What were you saying? Oh, I was just gonna say it sounds like it may be a future show if we all have it. Yes, and we'll probably read it. So yes. yeah. that may be a future show, but it's so long it might take two episodes. Ooh, two parter. <laughs> I like it. I like yeah. it. The first 400 pages, and then the next 400 pages. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I think we do a two parter. I like it. Mm -hmm. What have you been yeah. up to, Todd? Uh, not much reading, um, because it's been super busy. We're at the end of the semester, but I wanted to talk about, um, a art ex exhibition, uh, because we, uh, my urban art mapping team had the privilege and honor of interviewing Say Adams, the artist and designer Say Adams, who's like the most important artist in hip hop history. Mm. Um, he designed all kinds of stuff, uh, logos and album covers and, um, you know, License to Ill, the, the BC Boys famous album cover with the uh, plain tail, he designed that. And um, and so he has um, an exhibition here in St. Paul, in St. Oh. Anthony Park, South St. Anthony Park, called Etc. 40 Years of Art and Design. And so uh, you should just look that up online. And it's like a, it's a little kind of uh, exhibition space in the basement of a office building over in South oh. St. Anthony Park. And it's got, I think there's probably... 40 pieces in there um and it's uh when when we were there doing an interview we were doing an interview in the middle of the gallery and nobody was there so i think if you go you'll be able to have your own personal time with the art you know so i thought man i want to make sure that people know about this and and go and check it out so um just look it up online and you'll find out where you need to go and we'll also link it when in our um website when that's we right that's right we can do stuff in the future on this show can't we like <laughs> yeah <laughs> awesome that sounds great do you know when it's up till yeah it's up all until august Perfect. so all okay. summer long so you don't have to hurry or anything cool but you should hurry because you know you can go see multiple times that's right awesome thank you um so i am also going to do a non-book uh <laughs> A non-book. Uh, so the Twin Cities International Film Festival is back this year in person, which is like super exciting. So I got to go see a bunch of films. And the one that I want to recommend is called Wildhood. And it's a story of these two um, like teenage Mi'kmaq um, sort of uh, two-spirit uh, kids who kind of like, it's kind of like a road trip genre, but it's about these two kids who are like have different uh, connections to their like Mi'kmaq culture. And they're sort of like, you know, one kid is like kind of discovering slash rediscovering and they also like fall in love. And it's like, it's just like beautiful story, but also like apparently Eastern Canada is just beautiful. It's like, just like all this like scenery of them, like with the sunset and they're like by the water and all of this. So there is like definitely at the beginning, uh, definitely some sort of violence and like parental abuse. But after that, it's kind of about these like three kids were like on this road trip. So highly, highly recommended Wildhood if you're able to, I don't know. I don't know if it's streaming yet, but if it is. I would recommend that. 
Um, all right. Well, so our next book is Vagabond by Elosa Osunde. And we're super excited about it because it's new, but also it's kind of like, actually speaking of like, I think part of it is like definitely fantastical and sort of kind of thinking about genre will I think be fun. And I think we are thinking that the next book after that is going to be Sula by Toni Morrison. So just a heads up. So that's going to be in uh, uh, Vagabond and then Sula. All right. So that's it for us. And as always, just a reminder that you can find the podcast and iTunes, Stitcher, all the places where you can find podcasts. Please get vaccinated and boosted and keep staying safe. Thank you for listening. And we're sending out big virtual hugs to y'all. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Drip coming to you from St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Washington, D.C. The show is written, produced, and directed by Anita Chikator, Crystal Moten, and me, Todd Lawrence. We are the All Spoilers Collective. Special thanks to Lord Jordan X of Kansas City, Missouri for our music. I've been a little bit behind on getting the show out in a timely manner, so please forgive us for that. But we'll be recording a new show in early July on the new novel Vagabonds by... Lagosa Asunde. I'll do my very best to get that out to you as soon as possible. Until then, take care of yourselves and each other. Peace.